welcome to a joyful episode of My Summer Lair. I'm your host, Sammy, a.k.a. Thunder Punch He-Man Yunan. Think about this for a second. Like, truly think about this. Superman has been around since 1938. Even if you haven't read a Superman comic book in the last 10 years, even 20 years, you can still close your eyes and picture who Superman is. You know who Batman is. You know who Spider-Man is. There are nerds, generation after generation of nerds, who keep these characters alive and vibrant and popular. Can you name a handful of Greek or Roman or even Egyptian gods? Maybe Apollo, Zeus, Horus, Seth? When, and more like if we ever talk about those gods, those characters, it's almost always in past tense. They are strictly archaeology. I mean, you could fly to Egypt right now and see their quote-unquote comic books. All the iconic hieroglyphs chiseled and painted on the temple walls, they are beautiful, depicting the adventures of these ancient gods that nobody worships anymore. Superman, Batman, and Spider-Man are alive. They thrive in our culture and are part of our culture. It's the same with Star Wars and the Muppets. If you have kids, they're going to have pretty much the same childhood you did, just with better special effects. The tension is that these generations of nerds do not own these characters. Nerds and fans are just caretakers. Our presence prevents neglect so they don't end up like those Egyptian and Roman gods. Corporations own these characters. Corporations sometimes create these characters. And as an example, you'll hear in this episode of My Summer Lair is He-Man. Talking to director Rob McCallum about his documentary, Power of Grayskull, the definitive history of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, which you can see on Netflix, highly recommend it. It's a story about how the corporation did everything right. You know who He-Man is. You've heard of He-Man. And yet the corporation did everything wrong. We are, after all, getting a new Spider-Man movie and a new Batman movie soon. (laughs) And you know what? It doesn't even matter when you listen to this. Five years from now, ten years from now, those are still going to be facts. We will be getting a new Spider-Man movie and a new Batman movie. But it doesn't look like we'll be getting a new He-Man movie anytime soon, right? The passion and the joy for these characters infuses our entire discussion, which starts with He-Man and works its way to another iconic character, Mr. Dressup. If you're an American, you may not know who Mr. Dressup is, but you got to stick around. This is going to be fascinating because he's another example of how the corporation, in this case the CBC, did everything right and tragically did everything wrong. How's it going, Tammy? I'm good. How are you? Are you ready to get into He-Man and Mr. Dressup and all the other fun adventures of the youth? Absolutely. Before we get into your uh, latest projects, I want to start at the start. I want to start at the beginning. How did Evil Dead and a Ghetto Blaster kickstart your film career? Well, Evil Dead and a Ghetto Blaster turned turned out to be the key to escape uh, oral presentations in French class in high school. 
instead of writing a story, a narrative, and reading it in front of the class, I, uh, I took the unorthodox approach, which is no surprise some 25 years later, mm-hmm. to asking my teacher if I could make a movie instead. And I decided to parody Evil Dead in a 10-minute version of it, all in French. But I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never made a film before. My grandparents who raised me had a handy cam. And so I just kind of learned how to do stuff. And I thought, well, how do we get music in this? Well, of course, we followed the camera with a ghetto blaster so that the audio kind of picks (laughs) up on the camera mic. And that was the start of my do-it-yourself revolution filmmaking. Yeah. Do you know how to say Evil Dead in French, or is that long gone now? Uh, L'Amour Malzain. Okay. There you go. And so from there, you decided to kind of keep going then and keep making films once you figured out, like, there might be better ways to do this other than follow around the camera with a ghetto blaster? Oh, yeah, I was hooked. I was I was hooked. I had so much fun shooting late into the night. It was only a one-day shoot, mm-hmm. but I had so much fun making that movie. And then at the same time, I had all the same kind of fun when I got to show my entire class. And they just ate it up. They laughed at parts I didn't expect. They mm-hmm. enjoyed different things that, you know, I didn't expect. And, you know, it's a telltale sign. Anytime you do a screening, you never know how the audience is going to react. And so coupled with the love that I had preparing for the production, executing it, and then showcasing it, I was just like, oh, man, I know exactly what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I was super fortunate because this was like grade 10 for me mm-hmm. that I want. I knew what I wanted to do from that point on. So the next two films I made were also in French. Um, it was this common theme. I could get out of French assignments somehow because all the teachers knew each other and they kind of laughed because they had seen these other films that I had done. And so they let me keep going. And at one point I tried to do something in English and I tried to, you know, work with the AV department in my high school to put actual credits on the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just ended up eating the tape and cutting out like my deleted post credit scene before they were <laughs> cool to put in movies. Yeah. But I had credits. So yeah. And then from there, just, you know, went to university at, at Western here in London, went to, did, I did film theory. And again, my last year, instead of doing essays, I brought out the old, well, what if I make movies instead of writing about them for another year? And all my profs were like, yeah, totally cool. So I made 20 short films my last year based on the same kind of things that I would have written about. Um, but just, you know, that was the kind of thing that was, you know, honing my chops and using different gear and like learning to edit on linear systems and, and then eventually nonlinear editing and, and so on and so forth. So kind of the, the fun school of hard knocks, not knowing what you don't know, and then realizing how you want to improve each and every time. Yeah, I, film is ambitious, right? Because there's, so there's so many technical aspects to it, right? Like you can sit down... Well, I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know that. I just know that I loved movies, and I wanted to make movies and tell stories. Yeah. And then I realized, huh. That doesn't look quite as polished as I thought. Not that I thought that. I just thought, how can we make this better? How can we make this look good, sound good, and feel good mm-hmm. and longer? So that was all. Oh, I'm just going to do it. But yeah, if you would have told me, you know, making movies is ambitious, I probably would have been like, huh, maybe he's right. And then I probably would have done it anyways. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Like, you don't, like, the set is a wonderful world. Like, it's like a casino, right? Because there's no, like, windows or clocks or anything. So you're just kind of in this world, and you just got to create a problem solve all day long. And it's a really kind of fun high that way. 
I've never thought of it as like a casino, but that is such a good analogy because time does disappear. You get some wind streaks with shots that get pulled off and takes that happen when you're working with actors and you see some magic and things that you never kind of expected and luck, you know, rolls your way sometimes. Yeah. Shooting on a set is, is kind of like a casino. Yeah. That's cool. I like that. I'm stealing that. <laughs> all right. It's, it's all yours. So I want to stick with uh, your uh, wayward youth. Uh, so when you weren't making a uh, French Evil Dead versions or parodies, as a kid, your nerd leanings were heavy metal toys and video games. Is that correct? And they still are. Did TV and comics as well fit into all that mess? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was, you know, I was raised in the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, we were the luckiest generation of people. We had the heyday of action figures, Saturday morning cartoons sugary cereals that fueled you know potential adhd Mm -hmm. like we'd never seen before (laughs) and of course you know video games really hit its stride in the mid to late 80s with nes coming to the home so that was my sphere of influence and how i learned to tell stories first with action figures and of course watching the cartoons and then playing the games which is a whole new way of storytelling that's who I was, man. And those are the things that have always been around me. And I've never let them go because those are the things that have always made me happy. And I don't think I'll ever let them go. Why would you ever let the things go that make you happy and that put a smile on your face? I can see a new toy that gets announced today or hear about a new comic book and my face will light up still. And I think that's pretty, pretty astonishing. Because a lot of people, you know, choose to leave that stuff behind because it's, it's time to grow up. <laughs> it's time to get a mortgage and, and grab a coffee mm-hmm. and talk about stuff. I'm good. I'll, 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 I've got the easy path, if you ask me, because I already know what makes me happy, where I find so many people are looking for it. They had it. They just let it go. Yeah. that's the That was the moral lesson of Big, wasn't it? The Tom Hanks movie? Right? Like, don't be in such yeah. a rush to grow up. Treasure these moments. And I think, too, when we were living in the 80s, we didn't really fully grasp how good it was. Like, we didn't realize it was going to end. Yeah, you never know how good you have it until it's gone, right? Hindsight is twenty twenty, as as they say. And while we may look back with rose-colored glasses, I think we were truly blessed in the 80s amongst any other generation. I think people that were adults in the 80s could argue that the 60s and 50s were just as cool, but it wasn't. There's pros and cons to each, you know, decade that we grow up in and we hit our formative years. But I, I honestly think when you compare decade to decade, the advantages, the pros and cons, the kind of pop culture, the stuff that's going on in the world, kids of the 80s are, you know, I just, I just think that they, they, they had the golden age of, of adolescence and, and growing up and becoming people. Mm-hmm. And what about being Canadian? Like, does being a Canadian give you an outsider inside point of view? Like, as Canadians, we consume a lot of American culture without being part of American culture. Yeah, it's it's an interesting angle, and it's something that I had that I had, you know, thought about, especially as I lived in the U.S. for ten years. And even though I was Canadian, and our cultures are so close, it took me living in America to see how different our people and cultures truly are. We are very different. Mm-hmm. It's uh, two different people. countries. Yeah, we do consume a lot of stuff that comes over the border through the airwaves and stuff in Canada. We we get a lot of American program, especially growing up. Now it's a little bit different because everything is on 
Netflix or Amazon Prime. You don't know if you're watching something from France or if you're watching it from Spain or if it is from America. So it's mm-hmm. been a little diluted and watered down. We also don't know what is truly Canadian anymore either as a result. Uh, but I do think being Canadian, it has built in a sense of being an outsider. And I think that's been a huge advantage to me because that's uh, an essential tool you need to be a documentary filmmaker. You need to be separate from the subject matter. You need to understand it, but you need to have that objectivity. So being a Canadian, growing up as an outsider by default, I think it perfectly positioned me to talk about these big topics of pop culture and, yeah, video games, comic books, action figures, all that kind of stuff, because we were on the outside, and now we can look in and talk about it very expertly i think as a, as a nation yeah what you're talking about like you've made jim henson sticks string and felt you've made nintendo quest and you've made power of great skull the definitive history of he-man and the masters of the universe which is now on netflix but not just the outside perspective but how are you avoiding the trap of just ODing on nostalgia because doesn't that kind of like the the siren song of when we sometimes go back to like something like He-Man or Jim Henson, we just kind of OD on nostalgia. So how do you avoid that trap? Well, you got to talk about why it's relevant now. I think that's the biggest the biggest crux. It's fine to pick any of these subjects. Batman the Animated Series, uh, the X-Men cartoon, Power Rangers, Transformers, whatever the thing is. And sure, go ahead and make a documentary or do some sort of projects on it. But I think you've got to turn the corner and say, okay, why am I making this project now? Why is it so relevant now? What am I really trying to say? With He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, when we did Power of Grayskull, what, what we really keyed in on that one was fan communities are the things that are keeping these formerly multi-billion dollar brands alive. And that is a very special thing because before it was always top down and out, top down and out, one-way street from the toy companies and the entertainment companies to the fans and that's where it ended now it's become cyclical and i think our documentary shows how it starts as a one-way street but now it becomes an ever-living ecosystem where someone will create something it'll go through the machine and it'll come back another way and it has to work in tandem so that's why that was important and that's why it's more than just oh man i remember those cartoons oh man i remember those you know action figures sure there's all of that but once you dig below the surface you realize there's something much bigger going on here uh, that is relevant to today. And it's a lesson to learn that we can't just, you know, shovel product out the back of a warehouse and into a truck, hope it's going to be a success. There's a lot more to the recipe going on here. And I mean, He-Man in particular was accused of crass commercialism and male machismo. Yes. You know, you've got to be a strong guy. You've got to blow this up and here, buy these toys too. And then you will be tough like He-Man. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more going on for that, uh, that whole brand, be it cartoon or toy, than, than anybody, I think, gave credit for until we started really piecing all the, all the well, the pieces together. Uh, when you look at Nintendo Quest, you know, why am I talking about the NES, the, the very first Nintendo home-based console? Well, it's not that it's like, yeah, I remember sitting down cross-legged and having sleepovers with friends, you know, trying to beat Mike Tyson's punch-out all night long and never being able to do it. It's about why is this so relevant 30 years later? Because, you know, a guy has a dream that he wish he always had this and it's time to go after the dream. Why are we waiting to fulfill our dreams and how far will we go to get them? What obstacles are going to stop us? Who cares if it's a a dream about Nintendo? Sure. That's a fun dream, (laughs) but isn't it time that we got up off the couch and started pursuing our dreams? Let's, Let's just try it for one month and see what happens. 
So I think, you know, instead of just going, oh, you know, here's another nostalgia-based project like so many people want to do, I've always tried to take the human elements uh, and put them right in the passenger seat. So if, if the nostalgia is driving, you know that right beside it is the, the question of why is this important now and, and what is the new chapter of the story that relates to it. What you're talking about is like the difference between popularity and relevancy. I think sometimes we confuse those two things because something is popular. We assume that it's relevant, right? It's the same way that when if a movie makes a lot of money at the box office, it must be good. That's not always necessarily true. That's the challenge. It can be easy to be popular. We've seen that with like a lot of pop music and a lot of pop singers, whatever. But that music fades, right? It's not the albums that like change things and people continue to go back to whatever it's just fun for a bit of time but to be relevant and to be popular and relevant is even harder but to be relevant is like that's the sweet spot that's where you want to be yeah i mean that's like the critical reception from people uh you know that are thinking about what you're doing versus people that are just consuming it right you know people will say oh i love this movie but the critics hate it or the mm. critics love it but the people hate it you know so you're definitely playing with the two ingredients popularity and relevance and we see it on social media all the time people want all the links and they want all the views but they don't care about the comments as much for some reason and that's the engagement that's what makes it relevant that's the thing that you're really stoking the conversation and that kind of stuff gets you know lost in the wayside it's not a metric it's you know it's an intangible qualitative thing that that people kind of sweep away so you're absolutely right it, it is all about relevance and it's not just man let's do this because it was popular mm-hmm. how, how can we make that thing popular also relevant <laughs> yeah and i mean that's one of the reasons like what you were saying with about he-man is one of the reasons why like it's lasted and you can make a, a documentary about he-man and I could say the word He-Man and people know instantly what I'm talking about. It's not just some sort of old school thing of like Silverhawks or something like that. Some old school cartoon where people may not remember or can't remember like uh, who the characters were and stuff like that. Like Skeletor is a great meme and it's all over the place, you know? And so it's managed to yeah. stay relevant. Yeah, I, And I do think, you know, to to the other side of it though, I think in order to get a project out there, you do have to pick a popular thing. I don't think if I had a Silverhawks documentary... To use your example, or mask, or sectars, or air raiders, or centurions, that the same number of people would watch, regardless yeah. of what happens in the documentary, as Masters of the Universe, or GI Joe, or Transformers, right, or Turtles, because those big brands bring an audience. Now that you have them, what are you going to tell to them? Like, what are you going to say? What is your film really saying? You got one chance to say something. You know, don't blow it. Don't give them the same thing that they already know because they, they live it or that they can read in a book. What are you going to do with this opportunity? So that's, yeah. that's how I kind of approach stuff. Yeah, there's a big difference between GoBots and Transformers. Well, don't tell that to uh, GoBots fans. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Let me tell you, they are a feisty group of people. <laughs> I know. They do. They, ha- they deserve that little chip on the shoulder because uh, I know they are kind of hey, like... Hey, uh, you- <laughs> yeah, Psykill is the best. Don't ever, don't, don't ever say Psykill is better than Megatron. Let me tell you. Okay. I made that mistake once. All right. Uh, we will move on from this landmine because I don't have the strength and energy to deal with this. But I do want to acknowledge, like when you're talking about things that are popular and recognizing uh, popularity, and your documentary on He-Man, um, The Power of Grayskull, it, it acknowledges us too. We have to recognize what Star Wars did uh, with the Kenner action figures. So do you consider that the big Absolutely. bang of the, that whole action figure culture? Uh, I think it was certainly one of the ingredients, a, a big ingredient for sure. I mean, G.I. Joe 
and the fact that, you know, there was a whole male action department now, you know, to do boys dolls in the 60s is really the precursor to Star Wars, right? Because boys didn't have anything to play with because they couldn't play with dolls, but now they can play with action figures. And of course, there's a lot of discussion around what is the difference between the two. Is there a difference? You can watch my new series, Action Figure Adventure, to hear how people weigh in on that. <laughs> but the reality is the fact that all of a sudden there's this new market for boys called action figures in the 60s was a big thing. Now it was, okay, what can we put there? And how does the market react to this stuff? Okay, well, we can do a movie. People might see it, like Planet of the Apes, and I'm sure we'll put some figures out for it. But then it's kind of one and done. You get, you know, four, six, eight, ten figures maybe, and play set, and then you're done. And that's more movies come out, then you can do more. Star Wars for whatever reason, managed to break the mold. It was just such an impactful film that people were willing to wait months and months for the figures. And then, you know, Mattel was kicking themselves because they said, no, we can't do this because all our market research shows that, you know, sci-fi fantasy figures based on films don't do well. We pay a lot of money in licensing. We barely recoup the cost. Nothing is like a Barbie. So why would this be any different? Well, Star Wars is one one in a million. That's the deal. Mm-hmm. And so now they were looking for their one in a million and, you know, they were developing a lot of internal stuff and they got lucky. They had one. They had Masters of the Universe kicking or Lords of Power, as it was kind of called early on, and He-Man. Yeah, the Star Wars one in a million that you're talking about, too. One of the interesting aspects of your documentary is that, as you said, Mattel was searching for a viable IP. And it's fascinating because it's chicken and egg. Like... Having lived through the late 70s and the early 80s, we've now come out of this other side and we have Transformers and, of course, GoBots. Let's not forget GoBots. We have Alien and we have uh, the Turtles, the Mutant Ninja Turtles. We have Terminator. We have Robocop and Star Wars. We have all this plethora of IP. Even Rambo got a cartoon for a bit. So it just took a while for the industry to kind of create these successful products, basically. Yeah, and it just it had to talk to the audience in the right way. You know, Star Wars came along at a time where space fantasy adventure was fresh and kids wanted to see it. And so did adults. I mean, Western movies of the 60s were fading away. Star Wars is pretty much a Western, but set in space. And so the guns are using lightsabers and some guns to some extent, you know, but it's a little bit different, just different enough that it seems fresh and unique. So it catches on and then it obviously starts to trailblaze and and allow other things to fill this this new void that is uh, that is being created. So I, I recently read Sunny Days, the children's television revolution that changed America. And it's got, it's basically the origin stories of like Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers, Fat Albert, Schoolhouse Rocks, a whole bunch of those shows. And it was fascinating, like reading about Sesame Street, where they're like, they're creating this show. And then they suddenly decided like, you know what this show needs is this like really tall yellow bird. And we're going to call him Big Bird. And he's going to be like a real child and he'll be like innocent and fun. And it's amazing when you read this, you're like, how would you know that this would work? Or like, how did you come to this decision? And your documentary is fascinating because you, you hear all the decisions they're making about He-Man. And like, are you surprised they got it right? It, it took a while, obviously, for them to kind of get to the right ones. But are you surprised they got it right? Well, again, hindsight is twenty twenty, So it's easy to look back and talk about everything that went right. Not a lot of people remember the stuff that went wrong because... Any in any creative industry, you have to learn to get over the stuff that isn't working and quickly find the stuff that does work in, you know, that that does stick, that does work, that moves it on to the next phase. So, you know, I want to be fair to the people that we interviewed. Everybody sounds like a like a champion, like they're the perfect person at, at what they do. 
they have critiques of what their other coworkers are doing and why they shouldn't have done this or this, and this is how they came in and saved the day, where nobody really talks about their, you know, the, the problems that they had or what they should have done instead. For the most part, there's a few people that come down on themselves or wish that things had gone a different way. So it's easy to kind of look back and, and for us to present the story of here's the hundred things that went perfect for it to come together. Of course, all our, all our interviews are like three hours long, right? Mm-hmm. And people talk about different things and go off on tangents and we can't show everything because it'd be very hard for people to watch it and, and truly get an understanding of it. But it's not that they got it right. They spent years and years of getting things wrong before they got something that worked. And then I think they just, you know, had a way to keep it going bit by bit. And as you saw in our documentary, they didn't have it working for long before they started screwing up again in in different ways. You know, overstocking, not replenishing, charging too much, forcing this to happen. You know, the, the cartoon ended. They tried a new cartoon. Well, that didn't work. So it's not like it was a success and then they're done. They dust off their hands and here we are. We did it perfect because they couldn't recreate it, so they didn't know what they did. It was trial and error, and it only worked really well for a very short period. Enough to create billions of dollars, mm-hmm. but nothing, you know, forever. Yeah. And one of the people, too, in your documentary, who's also kind of, quote-unquote, got a lot of things right, was J. Michael Trez... I can never pronounce his last name. Straczynski? Straczynski. Yeah, thank yeah. you. He needs, like, a Troy McClure-type introduction, because, like... You know, we've known him from like Twilight Zone 85, Murder, She Wrote, The Real Ghostbusters, She-Ra, He-Man. Like, this guy's had an incredible career. Captain plus, Power. Yeah. Plus the all the Marvel work that he later did, like the Marvel Comics work with like Thor, Spider-Man. Um, he even wrote Superman for a little bit over at DC. Like, that must have been a real treat to talk to him because he's such a connective tissue for a lot of the old school cartoons and like old school work. Yeah, he was very generous uh, with his time. We didn't know when we'd be able to get to interview him. Uh, and we kind of just got the call. And thankfully, we were in the L.A. area still doing interviews. And we kind of had, you know, people figured out loose where we would shoot them and when. And he said, yep, come on down. It's totally cool. We came on down. He was in a very nice place. And he's got awesome memorabilia. And he showed us, like, some of his collection type stuff that was, you know, around and that's a treat just being into the whole pop culture collection side of things. But then when you get to talk to him, you get to see the real treasures come out of his mouth and the way his brain works about writing and, and, and creating characters and, and how to understand to build a show and what works and what doesn't work and how the audience is and how we, what, you know, all the little things that we take for granted when we just watch this stuff, he's really broken it down to a science. And it, it's just phenomenal to hear these kind of people talk. And we got that on more than one occasion. Yeah, and speaking of these kind of people, you also had Adam F. Goldberg as, a, as an executive producer? Correct. How did that happen? Because he's got quite the nerd street cred. Yeah, I mean, Adam is just, you know, he's really tapped into the whole pop culture sphere. He loves to support anything that uh, keeps, you know, nerd them alive from any era. He saw our project on Kickstarter when we launched it and he's like, I want to help as much as possible. What can I do? You know, can we work out some sort of executive producer credit situation? And, you know, of course we talked to him. Of course we can work something out. <laughs> yes, I guess we'll make it work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then he came on board and, you know, the team had some meetings and stuff with him and, you know, he was pretty instrumental in getting some other interviews to happen. He got, he had his people reach out for us and, just generally a good dude, and he's also an exec producer on one of my other series on video game box art, the stories behind the covers, which is a doc series on the cover illustrators of some of gaming's most iconic covers. So, again, 
they weren't in relation to one another. It wasn't like, hey, uh, you know, I saw that you you do He-Man. I'm going to help you with this thing, too. He actually was on our gaming cover illustration documentary first. And unbeknownst to us, also saw this other Kickstarter and said, I want to support this as well. So, again, just really in touch with what's going on, making the effort to make sure cool projects see the light of day. Yeah, he's working on, um, uh, I think it's coming out next year, a uh, Police Academy documentary, <laughs> which is amazing. Uh, I can't remember who's directing it, but he's producing it. And I'm like, oh, man, like, I don't need a trailer or anything. Like, show me the Police, do- uh, Police Academy uh, documentary and, uh, like, show me where it's screening and I'll gladly go see it. Well, again, to your point, what is the relevancy? That's the angle I want to know. Mm-hmm. So show me the angle and then then get me excited because that's what's going to hook me. Because there's so many of these nostalgia, fan-fuel-driven docs on these big pop culture uh, brands, and I think a lot of them miss the relevancy kind of test that, that we were talking about. So that's what I want to see. Then I'll get excited. I, I could care less about the IP that they're talking about as long as the relevancy score is through the roof. So let's keep talking about relevancy then, because your latest project is documenting Mr. Dress Up. First, before we kind of get into the actual project, I know most people, especially Americans, they know who Jim Henson is, Mr. Rogers. So can you just give us a little bit of a background? Um, Obviously, I know who he is, but can you give us a little bit of background on Ernie Coombs, a.k.a. Mr. Dress Up? Sure, you're going to make me do the heavy lifting. Okay, no problem. I guess I should know something about this. (laughs) You're the one doing the documentary. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose. I suppose this is a good test for me. I mean, the easiest way that people like to relate Mr. Dress Up uh, to Canadians is that he's somewhat like the Mr. Rogers to Americans. And it's a pretty pretty interesting uh, relation because they were actually really close friends, Ernie Coombs, who's Mr. Dressup, the titular character from the long-running Canadian series, which ran for, you know, 29 years, 4,000 episodes, 67 to 96, plus 10 years in reruns. Uh, he was Fred Rogers. Uh, he was Fred Rogers' assistant, and he was a puppet builder. He actually built Lady Elaine for the Mr. Rogers Neighborhood Program. Mr. Rogers had come up to Canada with Ernie Coombs from Pittsburgh because CBC gave Mr. Rogers a deal. Uh, to create a new show, and he created a show called Mr. Rogers in Canada with Canada's resources and uh, their blessing. And it was all the familiar elements. The trolley, the castle, King Friday, Lady Elaine, Ernie Coombs was his assistant, would perform, would be a puppeteer as well. But then Fred Rogers wanted to go back to America, and, and Ernie wanted to stay in Canada. So they built a new show around him called Butternut Square, which was an ensemble piece, and that's when the character of Mr. Dressup first began. Budget cuts came in they had to cut the ensemble piece down to basically just ernie coombs and two puppet characters casey finnegan performed by judith lawrence and then that was when mr dressup was truly born so it was ernie and judith performing those two characters and like i said from 67 to 96 they were the staple of canadian airwaves uh for a half hour show that was shot live to tape no commercial breaks which was basically like watching a play with three cameras coming back and forth. They couldn't stop and start. They didn't have the budget to do it. But it was all the the gentle things we love uh, when we're a kid. You know, we're making crafts, we're drawing, we're singing songs, and we're telling stories. And the best part of the storytelling and Mr. Dressup, of course, the iconic piece of the entire show was the tickle trunk. So when it came to telling stories... Mr. Dressup would walk over to the tickle trunk, this mm-hmm. 
unending box of possibilities that he would open and there'd always be a different costume inside. And there'd be sometimes a couple different pieces that were really strange and weird and you didn't know how they would fit together and Mr. Dressup would put them on and you would find a way to make it fit and it would suit the story. Now, these aren't high-end costumes, of course. <laughs> They're kind of things that are found around the house and we use our imagination tool to connect the dots. And so Mr. Dressup for Canadians no matter what age you were, there's, I think it impacted probably about five generations. We grew up with the sense of, of play, the sense of imagination and making use of the things we have around us to tell the stories and be a part of the stories that, that we want to see play out. And it happened every day. And there was no big conflict. There was no world stakes like in Paw Patrol where, oh no, Adventure Bay is going to crash under the tsunami wave if we don't help the sparrow get out of the tree. No, it was like, well, what story do you want to play? Well, let's play this. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's do it. And maybe the story is a little bit different because they're making it up as they go. Or let's just sing a song or let's make a craft. It was unending possibilities. Every time we saw it, it was gentle. It was patient. It was in the moment. And you felt safe every time you sat down and watched it. So let's open up this tickle trunk uh, with the uh, TARDIS-like interior. Like, what can we expect from your Mr. Dress-Up doc? Like, you've already started doing interviews, and you mentioned, like, the whole idea of keeping it relevant so that it's not, it doesn't slip into nostalgia. What can we expect from the doc? Well, uh, relevancy is a big thing. When we started this, we were like, hmm, this, this is surely a subject that should have been done. Let's walk into it at least to tell the story of how it came to be and, and try to figure out what other stories are happening today that make it relevant. Uh, so we started interviewing everybody. I think we've got like 30 plus interviews of key cast and crew and people that are connected to the Coombs family, his son, his daughter, uh, their extended family. And then we discovered there's whole generations now in Canada that don't know who Mr. Dressup is. Chances are, if you're under 30, 28, you may have never seen an episode of Mr. Dress-Up. Mm -hmm. You can't even find episodes of Mr. Dress-Up. There's a handful online right now. And as a parent, I've got two kids. One is six. One is almost three. You kind of want to expose them to the things that help shape who you are. And when I couldn't find more than four or five episodes online, it was really disturbing to me and I started digging and digging and finding out why is Mr. Dress Up so hard to find? What is going on here? What is the legacy of this program, these, this show that everybody I know that loves it, how come this is being forgotten? How come it's disappearing? Why is it like evaporating into the ether? And now there's whole generations of Canadians that don't, that they don't have these values of being resourceful, being kind, being humble, that he would you know, instilling us every single day for a half hour. How come we don't have this anymore? And that's the story that we tell in the documentary. And that's the path that we're on. Because that's the relevancy. How come something like this can fade away so quickly the second we take our eyes off of it? That tragedy is compounded because we've also seen in the last maybe like, say, five years or so, five, seven years, a real resurgence for Mr. Rogers. Right with the documentary, and there was a biography book that yeah. came out. There was the Tom Hanks movie. Like they've managed to keep Mister Rogers and his spirit alive and active, and in our pop culture, as you said, like what we were saying before about the difference between 
uh, being popular and relevant. They've managed to keep Mr. Rogers relevant and his values relevant. And it is sad that, like you said, like the Mr. Dressel stuff is fading. It's like uh, it's like a movie, right? When it just kind of fades to black at the end. And it's like, why would it fade to black? Like it should keep going. Yeah, it's uh, it's I, it's a weird conundrum that I guess it's not that weird because as Canadians, I think we are very bad at celebrating the things that we do. Our American counterparts are fantastic at saying, look at what we did. Look at this. Don't forget it. Look how cool this is. Remember how important this is? This is still important. This is still important. Mm -hmm. And rightfully, rightfully so, that stuff is still important. And good on you for not letting us forget it. Because if we forget it, then we forget a, a piece of how we came to be. You know, forget history and you're, you're destined to repeat it. Mm-hmm. We're now we're at a point in Canada because we don't wave our flag other than maybe Hockey Night in Canada because it's a weekly thing. We don't have these, the, these kind of iconic tropes that we get to go back to, these institutional programs that they have in America that are long running. You know, the Simpsons, you know, is up into the 30-year run on television. Mr. Dressup is the same, but but nobody knows Mr. Dressup nowadays. Imagine a world where people forgot about The Simpsons. Yeah, that's not... strange, or Sesame Street. Mm -hmm. Very strange, right? So how come we're allowing this to happen with such a big program that influenced so many of us? Everybody that's in government, I guarantee knows Mr. Dressup Mm -hmm. on some level. Even the French Canadians that grew up with, you know, French CBC that may not have had, you know, Mr. Dressup on per se, they probably are well aware of who Mr. Dressup is because of their age and their and how they grew up in Canada. So it's really sad that that is fading away. <laughs> we, yeah. We should do something about that. Well, what's also even more bizarre when, when I'm listening to you talk about this is that Canada's legacy in general is that we do children's TV shows really well. Like, we even just recently created Paw Patrol. Like, this is, we've had a legacy in Canada of creating really compelling, really good children's television, more than anything else. Like, our adult stuff's kind of hit or miss. But when we somehow do it for kids, we somehow are able to hit it. Yeah, Canada on the entertainment uh, platform is, has always been well known for children's entertainment and documentaries, almost exclusively those two things. So it's kind of cool that I get to use one to kind of talk about the past of the other. What is it you think that makes it so good? Like Canadian children's TV shows like Mr. Dress Up that connects it with the kids. Like you mentioned imagination and play. Is that what it is? Or is there certain Canadian values that run through these things? I, I think there's a lot of Canadian values. I don't think you could find somebody that typifies uh, what a Canadian is known as on the international stage more than Mr. Dressup. Think about Mr. Dressup, okay? Mm-hmm. He's humble, he's kind, he's patient, he takes his time, he's resourceful, he's funny, <laughs> you know, he's gentle to others, he promotes inclusiveness, he, you know, always has time, he's never in a rush. Isn't that kind of what people say Canadians are? stereotypically right or wrong Mm -hmm. that's kind of the moniker that canadians get you know and just think about how the world might be if we all acted a little bit more like mr dress up Mm -hmm. but we don't have that example to follow anymore because it's not on the air it's not even accessible say 11 episodes now yeah you know so i think that it's all these canadian tropes that got reinforced 
as a character in Mr. Dressup. I think it's enhancing our sense of imagination and constantly practicing playtime. There's nothing more important that a child can do than play. I think adults need to know how to play more because it would reduce stress and unlock other skills and really enhance their life if they could just play. And, and I do think that it's the lack of conflict that the show presents. It's not about solving the problem. It's about unending possibilities and doing whatever we want in the moment. And even the earlier episodes, when it was in black and white, when it was Casey Finnegan and Mr. Dressup, it was more about understanding the family unit. So Casey would sit down and he wouldn't want to have the bowl of soup that Mr. Dressup gave him, that he you know, went down to get uh, an extra can from the neighbors because Casey had really asked for the soup and then when he was served, he didn't want it. Well, what is that situation and how do we resolve it? And just understanding these small moments are actually big things for a child and in life for them to understand why Mr. Dressup might be frustrated or why Casey might change, you know, his or her mind. When you talk about Mr. Dressup and you talk about imagination and play, uh, you're obviously talking about fun and joy. This is what you've staked your entire career on. Like, you're the Mr. Dressup of nerdery, basically. Your stuff is always... Well, that's very kind of you to lay that moniker on me. I don't <laughs> think I've quite earned that. But I think you can see... The yeah. impact that the Mr. Dressup show has had on me, yeah, I think that would be pretty easy to, to draw that line. Yeah, you actively promote imagination. Like, even in throughout the He-Man documentary, like, the questions and the, the responses you were getting from people, um, even the people who were the actors in the real-life movie, like Dolph Lundgren and stuff like that, like, they, they're all telling you stories about their imagination and, like, what they wanted to do with the characters and how they wanted to build it and do this stuff and do these sets and things like that. Like, it was all about world creating and, like, having fun and utilizing that imagination. And that's what you've done since, like, the beginning. Like, when we started this interview, I asked you about the early days of, like, doing Evil Dead in French, right? You, you see something and you want to create it and you're trying to figure out how to manifest it into the real world. The answer is yes. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what to tell you. I, I mean, it's it's not it's not untrue. I mean, I will say that all the projects I work on are a collaboration with a lot of people in a lot of different capacities. And Power of Grayskull, you know, I worked with a co-director named Randall Lobb, so he had as much input as I did. And of course, we had our cinematographer Isaac and our other producer and editor Mark, who were all all four of us were equally you know, entrenched in the creation of that program. So it certainly wasn't just me. Mm -hmm. And even on other projects where I do play a more singular show running lead, I'm constantly leaning on people. But yeah, it, for me, it is all about the imagination. It, it certainly is. And getting back to that sense of play, because I think anytime you can talk about that, people kind of stop and go, oh yeah, it's interesting. I had mentioned Action Figure Adventure, uh, which is now out on Super Channel, Jinx Esports TV in Canada exclusively, which is cool. And one of the first questions I sat down and asked people about that was, how did you used to play when you were a kid? You know, when you played with toys and action figures, how did you play? And everybody has to stop and think. It's like they hadn't thought about that in decades. Mm. Like, oh, I used to go in my backyard in my sandbox. I'd get some water and I'd build castle walls and I'd have my <laughs> figures dive through them. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'd be in a creek or I'd be in a tree and they'd zip line down or I'd get those parachute guys and throw them out of my window run downstairs and try to get them before they landed mm -hmm. or I'd use a BB gun and shoot GI Joe's or whatever the answer was. This mm -hmm. is, but they hadn't ever thought about how they played. They had forgotten that. And the second they think about that, then everything else is open for me to talk about whatever, because now they want to play because now they're thinking about playing.
Yeah, that was what was so telling about the He-Man commercials you had in the documentary was they showed the kids actively playing. And even there's one part where there's like a dad who was kind of like participating and he got like uh, stabbed with the sword, like the plastic sword, obviously. And he kind of falls on the couch and he's like, oh, like, you know what I mean? Like, you got me. That was bizarre. I guess just kind of watch that now. I'm like, is that how they sell like toy commercials now? It doesn't feel like they would like to show kids just kind of actively playing with them. Well, it's different now, right? Kids don't know how to play. Because kids play video games on the screens more than anything else nowadays. Yeah. Video games have have become the go-to play uh, answer. It's mm-hmm. not action figures anymore because video games are so alluring, and I think games are great, and there's a place for them. But I think there's something that you can learn by playing with toys and action figures, the physical, tangible thing, especially with other people. And those commercials showed us how to use those figures. UB Skeletor, UB He-Man. Okay, I'm going to get Castle Grayskull. Not if I have something to say about it. Ah, I got you. Aha, I won the day. I have the power. Mm-hmm. You know? I, they showed the narrative that they wanted you to play out. Nowadays, it's like, look at this new Paw Patrol thing. Or check out Elsa in the Frozen Palace, exclusively from Disney. Mm-hmm. Now she could be a princess all the time. Okay, well, what's the story you're trying to tell with that? There's no sense of story. The only way you understand story for toys nowadays is to watch the cartoon show that's animated that isn't grounded with a real person. Again, another key factor about dress-up. It was a real person you saw on screen. Yeah. That's a human being, man. I know what that person's like. I can read their face and interpret those emotions. You don't get that with animation. And I love animation, don't get me wrong. But when you're talking about kids that are preschool years, stuff like Sesame Street, Mr. Dress-Up, Mr. Rogers, there's a reason why the, the living person has to be there. Yeah. So where can people find you online to find out more info on Mr. Dress Up uh, documentary, to talk to you about imagination, and to hear about some of your other projects like the Jay and Rob toy show? Well, the easiest place to go is robmczob.com. R-O-B-M-C-Z-O-B.com. Uh, it's kind of what I call my personal online play space. It's not the typical, you know, filmmaker website that you'll go to that's like here check out my films and here's some awesome trailers that kind of stuff is on there but there's a blog you know built into it there's links to shows and stuff that i like it's a little bit more about my space the way i want to do it and how i see it fits so check out robmczob.com you will see links for all the different shows that i've done all the different doc series and feature films but you also get to know who i am and the other things that i'm doing and i encourage you to reach out and help build this community that we're in because i think we're all so fractured we're all living in silos, especially in a pandemic, that we need to engage with one another more than ever. So let's really start this engagement. That's another great dress-up rule. Mm-hmm. Let's build a community and stick together. I like that. And you're saying you're hoping that the Mr. Dress-Up documentary will be out sometime next year? Is that the plan? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, COVID-19 has, you know... I know. ...thrown everything into uncertainty. If it had not have hit, we probably would have had it out early next year, like in the next couple of months, but it did happen, mm-hmm. you know? What it should have, could have, it has happened. A lot of good things have happened as a result of us stopping what we were doing. We have a lot of new production partners on board. We were able to announce the project and it's on Facebook and a lot of people are excited. Yep. And now we have a lot of cool new options that we would have never had before. So we're super thankful. And, you know, I'm old enough that I can say, things happen for a reason so quit trying to fight and get to the finish line sometimes 
the delays are supposed to happen, whether we understand them in the moment or not. Right? We talked about that with He-Man. Hindsight is 2020. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a blessing I don't see in this moment that I'll understand a little bit later. That is happening with Dress Up. I think Dress Up, if it comes out, it'll be late 2021, maybe early 2022, depending on what cool possibilities happen. If it gets delayed, it's only because cool things are happening. Let me tell you that. There's nobody that would love to release this and share the magic of Mr. Dress Up with the world more than me. Mm-hmm. But if it takes longer, it's because it's only going to be better and you only get one shot to release a movie. Correct. All right. That's a positive note. We can end it there. Uh, we covered quite a bit. We covered uh, Don't Mess with the GoBots community. We covered He-Man. We covered uh, the legacy of Mr. Dress Up. Um, I think we did quite a good job. Great. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to wax intellectual about all the things that, uh, you know, turn my gears every day. Mm-hmm. And I look forward to the next time that we can chat and catch up to make sure I'm still on uh, straight and narrow. All right. <laughs> That'll do. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, yeah, we will talk when the the actual documentary, Mr. Dress Up documentary is out, because that'll be fun. And to okay. kind of see that, um, as you said, like, that's the second part. Like when you were talking about the Evil Dead short that you made for your French class, people got to see the screening and connect with it. I think that'll be really interesting to see that, especially for Americans who may not know or are not familiar with Mr. Dress Up. That'll be a really cool connection with them. See that realization of who this who this man was and what he gave us. Yeah, I agree. It'll be interesting to kind of see, sit back and, and, and help spread that legacy to people that might not know and then give them that soul food they need to uh, discover who he was and what that show is. All right, Rob, that's it. Uh, We are done. Thank you so much for your time and for your uh, generosity with your ideas. I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, thank you. You know, I'm sorry that you had to dig into my life so much, (laughs) you (laughs) poor person, um, and deal with all those skeletons that are out there. But, uh, well, you're still alive. Yes. Well, thank you. I do appreciate it. Yeah. And high five and cheers. Cool. Cheers, man. Bye. fun was that? I am Sammy Yunan. That was director Rob McCallum, and this is my summer layer. That whole conversation echoed the way a stand-up comedian works. Comics like Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld will randomly show up at a comedy club and literally try new material out. And most of the time, it's raw and rough and awful. It's terrible. They're working and building a joke in front of you. Imagine assembling a piece of Ikea furniture live on stage. Seinfeld's recent book is called Is This Anything? Meaning he's got a premise or a joke or a situation. Well, is this anything? Can this thing become something? Comics will keep working until that material, until the answer to that, is this anything, is an emphatic yes. Then they book a tour, large venues, arenas, where they show up every night, And they kill. It looks like magic. You don't see how many shots Steph Curry takes alone in the gym. You just see the crazy shot he makes to win the game. And after a number of dates, stand-up comics film a one-hour special, and they retire that material. Then they start all over again. All terrible in comedy clubs. Building. Working. It takes time to be good. It takes patience to be good. It takes dedication to be good.
The experiences we've had consuming pop culture are astonishing. <laughs> Yo, like, I've had the immense privilege of coming along when Jim Henson was in his prime. I enjoyed the learning revolution of Sesame Street and the radical empathy of Mr. Rogers. And yes, the imagination of Mr. Dressup. I asked Rob, are you amazed? And you heard it, like, that these creators got it right. And he gave me a solid answer. And yet, their work lives on. Their work persists. What a rare and wonderful legacy to inject a powerful element into our popular culture. It's similar to science's periodic table. We have a table of elements, of building blocks. Take Star Wars. How many books and documentaries and podcasts and TV shows and websites, entire careers, has this slightly corny 1979 movie launched? Star Wars is a giant building block. It's a foundation stone. Not as large, but we've all seen that with Mr. Rogers. So it's sad to hear the same can't be said for Mr. Dressup. And all he did for us. Even better, all he did with us. I hope, I really honestly hope, conversations like this about Rob's documentary begin to change that. That eventually Mr. Dressup becomes a building block, a foundation stone on our pop culture periodic table, along with Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street. And yes, three is the magic number. That's my jam. Speaking of magic, I write a newsletter and do my best to infuse it with magic. A lofty claim, because even if I don't succeed, I still make your time disappear. See? Magic. It's called My Pal Sammy. Head on over to substack.com, substack.com, and search My Pal Sammy. Please sign up. I mean... Who doesn't need magic in their life? Sign up today and we can begin this magic moment. Yeah, I'm done now. Thank you so much for listening to me in a Netflix world. Mr. Dress Up, yo.